Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be moving into Genesis chapter 2 today. And um, I couldn't think of a better illustration than what just happened at this church. For an introduction, rest in a restless world. <laughs> wow. In Future Shock, uh, first published in 1970, actually, Alvin Toffler described the results of the rapid advancement of technology that he had observed in the 50s and 60s. And he said, as technology brought ever faster changes to society, certain people, uh, people would be left out. They'd be left on the sidelines, unable to cope with the speed of change. And the stress and disorientation in people was dubbed future shock. Um, that book's still available. I'd, I'd highly suggest you read it. He was a futurist. He wasn't a Christian, but he was an observer of culture, and uh, he went on to say this, a pending monumental breakdown of people who live in industrialized lands is going to take place. It's not a case, as some have said, of our choices being increasingly eliminated and industry forcing us into greater and greater uniformity, rather our operations are increasing, our options are increasing, okay? At an ever faster rate of speed, people cannot keep up with the choices that they are compelled to make. And we look at such things and conclude rightly and inescapably that this is an age of great distress and restlessness. Um, <laughs> I remember after working in Los Angeles, we went to Los Angeles from a semi-tropical rainforest directly into Los Angeles, and I worked at a church with about 8,000 people, and about, I think it was three months into our time, we had a little bit of a break, and we went down to San Diego, and I noticed I was sitting at, <laughs> in a chair, and I had just, I was just grasping the arms of the chair, white-knuckled, and I looked at it, and I just consciously released a little bit of my pressure and I just thought, wow, things really move fast here in California. In Japan, there's a phenomena that is uh, gaining attention called hikikomori. Uh, the term hikikomori is derived from the verb hiki, to withdraw, and komori, to be inside, to draw inside. It describes extreme social withdrawal in Japanese youth it was first gained attention during the 1990s. Research shows traumatic experiences of shame and defeat are commonly reported as triggers across cultures, such as failing important exams or not securing a cherished job. When I visited Japan, I've had an occasion to do that a number of times, the people that we worked with were called retarded. They were the people that were unable to keep up with the vast pace of Japanese culture, and so they checked out of it. And I'm sure many of them would fall into that category. But the, the culture is so toxic because the demands are so high for performance that some people just couldn't handle it. Now, they were not mentally retarded. Uh, their systems just couldn't handle it. Another writer lamented over the unintended consequences of ubiquitous devices, our devices, right? He says, 
What is supposed to help us is hurting us. What is supposed to free us up ends enslaving us. And that's the paradox of addiction. Whatever the lure, it seems so good, so positive, so helpful, so harmless, and then we're hooked. Society is now dominated by beliefs, attitudes, and ways of thinking that elevate the values of impulse, instant gratification, and loss of control to first-line actions and reactions. I want it now. Do it now. We can't see that we're causing our physical, emotional, and behavioral health problems as we try harder to go even faster. We believe that we need to be able to go this fast, and there's something wrong with us if we can't keep up, hence the retards in Japanese culture, right? We also see changes in our attention and thinking. Technological advances were supposed to free up creative thinking, but the mass of incoming information has actually eroded our attention and our creativity. When's the last time you picked up a book? (laughs) I remember five years ago when I was down doing my doctoral studies at uh, Master's Seminary, the head of the seminary came in and he said, man, I want to let you know that this is the first year of incoming students that the majority of those students have never read a complete book. That's in higher education. People have less time to reflect on anything as they become dominated by a need to act, a need to be online, robotically, always checking. Oh, do I even go there? What do you do first thing you wake up in the morning? Of course, you used your your iPhone, right, for your alarm, so it's natural, it's in your hand immediately. Well, as soon as you turn off the alarm, then you go and look at what's shaken, right? How many texts did I get? And you see you got 14 emails over the night. And Wow. What a place we've come to. You see, it's harmed also our relationships. People have less time to reflect on anything. Maybe the biggest cost is relationships. Instead of enhancing close bonds, technology has facilitated avoidance of direct person-to-person contact which takes too much time. I I see this in younger people, not so much in the church, but outside the church. When you try to talk to younger people, and I'm, you know, that's relative, right? But when you try to talk to younger people, the Gen Zers or whatever, it's hard for them to hold eye contact and communicate with you in full sentences. I think that's all a result of where culture has come. We maintain the illusion that we're connected more closely than ever by the number of Facebook likes or tweets that we accumulate. And so, try interrupting your impulsive behavior. This author's given us some advice here. Try to interrupt your impulsive behavior. That's like, you know, those people that are talking to an addict, tell them, just say no. (laughs) Okay, thanks for the advice. Turn off your phone for an hour each day. Or focus on a book. Well, when you go to the book, you can't focus. Especially if the beep goes off, signifying you got a text or something. That's a small start, but it's your next best step, this author. God's got a much better plan. He's got a much better plan. And Augustine had it right, lo, so many years ago, 
In the 300s, he said this, Thou hast made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Look at Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to see God's answer. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this seventh day in the creation week, a day that you set apart, called it the Sabbath, you rested from all the labor of your creation because it was completed. Lord, we are a culture that needs rest so bad. We talk about mental health days. Father, the culture is imploding. And (laughs) we're our own enemy. Lord, help us today to hear your answers to a culture that's gone out of control. And Father, speak to our hearts, each one individually, and let us hear what you would have us to do individually to adjust ourselves so that we aren't caught up in the insanity which is our culture, Lord. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. So day seven. We've gone through the first six days, and we talked a little bit about the um, sixth day and the creation of man. We're going to get back to that as we go through chapter two, and uh, that'll be in the following weeks. Today, I just want to talk about the seventh day. We read that it was on the seventh day that he rested. It doesn't mean that God was tired from his work. And so he needed to take some time out to recharge his batteries. That would be a very inadequate God as far as I'm concerned. Nor does it mean that he was indifferent to the activities and lives of the man and woman that he had created. Remember, he created them. And then it says on the seventh day, he rested. I don't know what implications that had for Adam and Eve. I wonder what they were thinking. What happened here? The heavens and the earth and all their hosts were completed, verse 1. God completed his work, verse 2. He rested from all his work, verse 3. So we see here that God's creation was complete. Everything that he did in those first six days, he, he had finished. It was complete. And this is contrary to what naturalistic evolutionary models that promote the idea that the process is actually still taking place. That is the process by which the world came into existence is still in process and therefore the key to the origin of the universe is to look at the process still in progress. But the word of God contradicts this thought because it clearly states that in Genesis 2.2 he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had done. God ceased from his labor. He rested because his labor was completed. So what they're observing as process is not creation. It's not how the world came into existence. That work was done in six solar 24-hour days, and on the seventh day, God rested. 
God ceased from his labor. He rested because his labor was completed. So it stands that an expectation of discovering the process of creation, or how the world came into existence, um, was all accomplished in the six days. And the only way we can know about that is through divine revelation. Because he ceased from doing what he did to create the heavens and the earth on the seventh day. All that we can witness now is what has taken place after the fall. And I might add, after the great flood of Genesis chapter 6, which totally messed up the earth. So you've got the fall and all the implications of sin entering into the world, and then you have a worldwide flood that messed up geological things from the way they were originally created to a very, very large degree. And so what we're observing is not what was originally created. We're observing something else. Now, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. God established a cycle of work and rest, which some of us need to refresh our memories on. He literally set a day apart from the other days, for that is what the word sanctify means. And we see this truth even before giving of the Ten Commandments, because during their time, after the Exodus, this is, I'm jumping ahead now, when Israel left Egypt, right, they were in the wilderness for quite some time, 40 years. And before God gave the commandments, we read that he gave some manna because they needed to eat. And it was bread that came down from heaven. And it says in Exodus 16 that they were to gather twice as much bread, two omers for one man, because he told them, for six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there will be none. So he already had that rhythm going from his initial days of creation, six, and a seventh day of rest, reiterated it with the manna before he gave the command in the Decalogue, the fourth command, to keep the Sabbath. And again, in giving the Ten Commandments, God reiterated the importance of the Sabbath, saying this, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you will labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh, your God. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. That's quite a plug for six solar 24-hour days because he's giving Israel at that time in the law, the fourth commandment, that they should work for seven or six days and rest on the seventh, just as God worked in the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. He makes that comparison. The Decalogue enforces the idea of a literal six 24-hour solar day being the metric for measuring the creation week. So that's the second blow against this whole process of evolution being billions of years and God taking, uh, excuse me, the universe taking all this time to develop to the point that it's at. Okay. Now, 
the implications for today are manifold. Remember the Sabbath. When we read in Genesis 2-3 that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, it means that he set it aside as a memorial, something to be remembered. He says, remember the Sabbath. A permanent reminder of his work in creation and that he is the creator of all things. That's what Israel was supposed to remind, uh, remember. Now, let, let me bring back to your mind what, what was taking place here. The first five books of the Bible are written by Moses. They were written after their exodus, and Moses is trying to give um, some kind of linkage for that nation of Israel, numbering well over a million people that came out of Egypt, and Moses was leading them, and he's trying to help them to understand their heritage, who they were. They were God's people. And so the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, was written by Moses for that distinct purpose. And he's telling them now that part of that is the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment. You're to remember the Sabbath day and to remember that God created the heavens and the earth. In Exodus 31, 13, it says, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. So that you'll know that I'm your God. Remember that I'm your God. I'm the one that created. But there's an interesting note in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Now you can take this down or you can turn to it because it tells us something else that they were to remember when they kept the Sabbath. It says this, verse 12, Deuteronomy 5, 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy or set apart as Yahweh your God commanded you Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Here's the clincher, verse 15. You will remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So not only are we to observe the Sabbath day, Moses is saying, to remember that God created everything in six days and then rested. We're also to observe the Sabbath day to remember that he liberated us from Egypt. So the Israelites were to see God not only as their creator God, but as their liberator God. I'm going someplace with this, so bear with me. Okay. So the Sabbath was to remind them of those two things, and they were to keep that in remembrance week by week. In a similar fashion to Elohim's resting after having completed the work of creation, 
So Jesus Christ also, after he completed his redemptive work on the cross and by his resurrection, rested. We read in Hebrews 10, 12, But he, Jesus, having offered a sacrifice for sins for all time, just that one sacrifice covered the sins for all time, sat down on the right hand of God, and he rested. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So God continues to work in his creation through providential acts. He preserves and he governs his creation. You know, we were just studying the providence of God last week in the men's Bible study, and we said that Though God rested, it is true, he rested from his creative work, his creation works, but he continues to work in the world. He didn't just take his hands off the world after he created it. He continued to work through what's called providence because he's planned. He's got a plan from before the foundation of the world that he set into motion, and part of that plan is even the fall of man and sin, and then the redemption that he provided, all part of his plan, and he carries it all out, everything, according to his plan, through providence. And so he kind of preserves that plan through providence, and he also governs things to happen in a way that they need to happen in order for his plan to carry out. So even though he rested on the seventh day, that was rest from his creative work, he continued to work in the area of province and carry out his plan. This is so, so cool. Both the Father and Jesus are still working, even though Jesus sat down after he was done with his redemptive work, because in John chapter 5, verse 17 in which the context is the Sabbath, we read Jesus saying this, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. How does Jesus work? Well, Jesus continues to distribute all the benefits of his redemptive work on the cross to those that believe. He continues to intercede for us, we're taught in 1 John. So he is working still, yet he is rested. He doesn't need to do anything more for our redemption, just as God didn't need to do anything more for creation. Catch the connection? Isn't that marvelous? There is a rest for believers, beloved. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And I want you to look at verse 9. Verse 9, and I'll read 9 through 11. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fail or fall through following the same example of disobedience. Now, he's referring to the Israelites when they were to enter the promised land. You remember at Kadesh Barnea, after they had 
been delivered from Egypt, they had the opportunity in just a few short days after, I think 11, after they came out of Egypt, to go into the promised land, and they refused to do it because of disobedience. They were fearful. For the word of God, verse, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing is the division of the soul and the spirit, both joints and marrows, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And judge them he did, and they spent 40 years because of their disobedience in the wilderness. So the first thing that I want you to understand of this rest that remains for God's people is salvation. Salvation. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. What's meant here is meant for the people right now, today, even us. Okay? In the church age, right now. The contest goes back all the way to Israel in the wilderness, like I told you, struggling with their trust in God, even though he had shown himself to be a God of miracles to them, when it came time to enter the land of Canaan, they rebelled in disbelief that God could actually protect them. They said, we're, we're like ants compared to those people. They'll, they'll take our children and kill them. And they did not trust God and go into the promised land. Therefore, they did not enter into his rest in the promised land. Consequently, they languished in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died. Now, first, there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and that is, as 4.10 says, whoever enters it rests from their works. The writer in Hebrews is going back to Old Testament history and recounting the problem that the Israelites faced when they didn't believe God, didn't trust him, and couldn't enter into that rest. He says, when you enter into God's rest, you cease from your works, kind of like God did in the creation story, and Christ did when he did his work of redemption. When a person repents and believes in Jesus Christ to forgive them of all their sins, past, present, and future, all their sins based on that ultimate sacrifice that Jesus did, no more works, nothing else needs to be done because Jesus did it all. It's compared to God's rest on the seventh day. They no longer needed to look to their own works, efforts to obtain favor with God for the forgiveness of sins. That's salvation. The only way a person will not enter into that rest is through disobedience, just like they didn't enter into the promised land through disobedience. They didn't trust God. And that's the same today with people that hear the gospel that Jesus can forgive you of all your sins but they don't trust him, that is disobedience. And therefore, just like the Israelites didn't enter into the promised land, neither do those people that reject the gospel and refuse to trust God experience spiritual salvation, the forgiveness of their sins. Same kind of disobedience the Israelites exhibited when they didn't trust God. Hebrews 4.2 explains that they had God's word. Look at Hebrews 4.2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, the writer of Hebrews said, 
just as they also, meaning the Israelites. The Israelites were told, God wants you to enter into the promised land. This is the one he promised to Abraham, and um, they had that good word. But just as they also had, but the word that they heard did not profit them because it was not united or mixed by faith in those who heard. They didn't believe. It's a pretty simple equation here. Okay? It says that they didn't believe. They failed due to their disobedience when they did not mix that good word, that good news with faith. In the same way, those who have the good news of the gospel today preached to them and they don't believe. Hebrews is saying, don't fail like they failed. Don't make the same mistake those Israelites made and all died in the wilderness. Don't fail to unite what you've heard with faith and thereby fail to enter into God's rest, salvation. Because the Israelites, it mounted to them not entering into this rest at all. But there's another aspect, okay, to God's rest for God's people. And this is a spiritual rest for us as believers, those of us who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he declared that his work was what? Finished. He actually said what? It is finished, right? Complete. It is finished. My work is done. Other places in the New Testament tell us that Jesus completed the work that he came to do. And there are no more offerings to be made to God because Jesus' sacrifice was ultimate. If you're in Hebrews, turn over to chapter 9 and look at 11 through 14. It tells us this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He died on a cross. He entered the holy place once for all, never having to be repeated, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify the cleansing of the flesh. That's talking about all the Old Testament sacrifices the Israelites used to go through to get cleansing and atonement for their sin, and they did it year after year after year after year because they had to keep doing it. But with Christ, it's only once. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the, the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from what? Dead works. Dead works. Now, here's where I want to talk to you believers, okay? There is a rest for God, for, for, for people today. It's God's rest called salvation, where we are redeemed because we trust him to forgive us our sins, okay? That's, that's the first element of God's rest. But then when we're believers, we can suffer all sorts of unrest. We can be going hither and yon, trying to do things that will please God. You cannot do more than what Jesus Christ did for you. <laughs> you need to rest in what he did for you. I've talked to many people. They're believers. They have entered into that eternal rest, eternal salvation, redemption through Jesus Christ, but yet they're still all harried 
trying to do things that will make God happy with them. And they're afraid if they do wrong things that God is an ogre and he's going to come beat them with a big stick. And he's just waiting to catch them. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the way he operates at all. When a person places their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they're trusting his once-for-all sacrifice to completely, which is all completely sufficient, and therefore they no longer struggle trying to please God with their works. They can rest, cease from your work, because Jesus Christ's work for redemption has ceased. Just as Hebrews 10.18 so clearly tells us, now where there is forgiveness of all these things, there's no longer any offerings for sin. So why do we strive so hard? Romans 4.5 says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him for righteousness because it's somebody else that did the work and we trust him. He's the savior, not we ourselves. And there's no reason for any believer to believe that somehow, if they just do better, God will love them more. It's not based on what we've done. It's based on what Christ did for us. To live with that motivation is to deny the fullness of our salvation. God looks at the son's sacrifice once for all as all-sufficient. And therefore, if a believer insists on trying to do something to please God, they're denying the son's sufficient work on the cross for them, which is sin, which causes frustration, sometimes depression. So if our motivation for doing good is not so that God will be pleased, what is the motivation? Well, the motivation is gratitude. The believer's true motivation flows from their gratitude to God for what his son has accomplished on their behalf. It is finished means it is finished. All our service to God comes from our gratitude towards him, and when the believer sins, that is when they must turn to the cross and once again remember all the sufficient sacrifice that Jesus did and the forgiveness of their sins by the Savior and intentionally exercise a grateful heart once again for full forgiveness. You could say when we sin, it's just a reminder of what Jesus died for on our behalf. And we should rejoice over that. And then that should make our hearts well up with gratitude that whatever you want me to do, Lord, I don't care. I am so grateful that you saved me. Now, questions may be in some of your minds. So are we to keep the Sabbath or not? Do we keep the Sabbath or not? Well, the answer to that, short answer is no. (laughs) I just take the mystery out of it. No, there is no more Sabbath. That was done away with. The new covenant has a new day set apart for worship. The Sabbath, being on Saturday, was the Jewish day of worship from the Decalogue. And until today, the Jewish people are still carrying that out. But we're living under a new covenant. Now, they don't recognize the New Testament, the Jewish people, right? It's a New Testament to us because we contrast it with the old covenant. But 
to them, Messiah has not yet come, and so they only have what we refer to as the Old Testament. They would refer to it as the Bible, <laughs> okay? But we're living under the new covenant. We're living under what Jesus said at the Last Supper. Jesus said this, this cup, and we're going to be celebrating it today, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, people. We're living in a totally new dispensation, if you will. And under the new covenant, the old covenant is done away. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. Colossians 2, 16 through 17, Paul tells the believers, no one is to judge them on a number of things. And one is in regard to festivals or a new moon or Sabbath day. Paul said, don't let anybody judge you because you're not keeping the Sabbath. Because under the new covenant, the church worships God when? First day of the week, on Sunday, like we're doing today. Why is it that Christian churches worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday? Because we're in a new covenant and Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and rose again from the dead on the first day. And that's why we worship God on the first day of the week. Now, what are you supposed to do with all this information? Well, number one, I'm going to give you four things, okay? Number one, recognize that the old covenant was designed to point us to Christ. The law was given to us, the Ten Commandments, okay, was given to us as human beings to recognize we can't do it. We can't keep it. That is the only purpose of the law, that and lifting up the name of God because he is the holy lawgiver and he's perfect. And if we kept the law, we would be perfect, but nobody can. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Colossians 2.17 says about keeping festivals and Sabbaths that they were all things which are a mere shadow of that which is to come. But the real substance belongs to Christ. Colossians 2. You can check it out. The law was meant to teach us that we can't keep it and therefore stand condemned. But Christ came and fulfilled the law so that we are not under the law, but under grace. Okay? There's been a way prepared for us. Number two, rejoice. So not only should we recognize something, we should rejoice in this truth for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in his flesh, Romans 8.3. It is finished. It's done. So rejoice over that fact. Number three, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, we can derive healthy principles from God's institution of the Sabbath from Israel, okay, because there is a divinely established rhythm of work and rest, isn't there? That is a creative order that he put the fine touches on to help his people, Israel, understand through the Decalogue. But there's principles there that we can apply. God gave six days for work and one day for rest so that we'll take that time to remember that God is a creator and a liberator. We can still remember that every Sunday when we get together. Setting us free from the punishment and power of sin. Take time to remember these truths. Now for years and years and years, 
I, I say this embarrassedly, but um, I never took a day off. <laughs> I really didn't. And I'm talking many, many years. And then after a few years after planting the church here, I realized I'm wearing down. A lot of work planting a church. And I began to take Mondays off. And I used to, the elders used to call me, and some people from the congregation used to call me too, just to see if I pick up my phone. And I really appreciated that. And I've done my best. I, sometimes I still play catch up because life is full. But the truth of the matter is, that was a glorious time for me to begin to take at least one day off because Sunday is my day of work. I mean, I'm ministering, I'm preaching, and you know, so. So Monday was a day of rest for me, and I really, really benefited from that. Um, I encourage you to take a day, if it's Sunday, fine. Maybe it's Saturday, and just relax, just relax. But not just leisure time, not just to do sports and other things. Take time to be holy. The Sabbath day was a day to remember God as creator and as liberator. So bring him into that time of rest. So I've got you recognizing that the old covenant has passed away, rejoicing in the truth that it is finished, remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and fourthly, repent and return to that rest by trusting Christ Jesus anew. Now, you may be a person that has not yet placed that full trust in Christ for salvation, so I encourage you, repent and return. Trust him for your eternal salvation and forgiveness of your sins. But those who have already trusted him, repent and return to that rest by trusting Christ Jesus anew in that area. Some have forgotten the wonderful liberation that Christ won for us. Some have slipped back into thinking that their lives are not pleasing to God, and so they double their efforts to make him happy. Stop it. Stop it. You will wear yourself completely out. Because there's nothing you can do more than what the Son has already accomplished for you. We've been accepted by God based on the work of another, not on our own works. And if that's the case for some of you, repent from that fruitless effort and bask in the truth of your freedom. Think of a song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. For some of us, it's, that snow's kind of the color that it was just last week, right? Kind of all yucky and dirty and everything. We forget that it's pure white, completed. Well, that's what I have for you this morning. And I'd like to call the men up for the uh, communion.